Welcome, and let's first talk compliance. I'm Catherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager of First Healthcare Compliance. Thanks for tuning in. You can follow First Healthcare Compliance on Twitter at FirstHCC, or on Facebook and Instagram at First Healthcare Compliance, or hashtag FirstTalkCompliance. On today's episode, I'm talking to Matt Kelly, CEO of Radical Compliance, about whistleblower hotlines, retaliation, and building a speak-up culture. We will discuss the current state of whistleblower hotline law, specifically anti-retaliation, and how a compliance officer can use a whistleblower hotline more productively to support a stronger speak-up culture across the board. We will also talk about the current state of anti-retaliation law and the implications of the Digital Realty Trust versus Summers ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court, discuss how hotlines fit into the greater scheme of employees speaking up about misconduct, and discuss how compliance officers can use hotlines to drive a speak-up culture generally beyond merely calling the hotline. Matt Kelly is an independent compliance industry analyst and consultant who studies corporate compliance, governance, and risk management issues. He maintains a blog, RadicalCompliance.com, where he frequently shares his thoughts on business issues and speaks on compliance, governance, and risk topics. Kelly was named a rising star of corporate governance by Milstein Center for Corporate Governance in the inaugural class of 2008 and named to Ethisphere's most influential in business ethics list in 2011 and 2013. In 2018, he won a Reader's Choice Award from J.D. Supra as one of the top 10 authors on corporate compliance. Kelly previously was the editor of Compliance Week, a newsletter on corporate compliance from 2006 through 2015. He lives in Boston, Massachusetts and can be reached at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com or on Twitter at Compliance Meme. So, Matt, welcome to First Talk Compliance. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Catherine. It's great to be here today. Great. Well, we're so happy to have you here. So the idea of having a whistleblower hotline is nothing new to most compliance officers, but how do hotlines figure into raising allegations of misconduct generally? Well, yeah, I think that anybody who's listening in corporate compliance probably is already well acquainted with whistleblower hotlines. They are not a new idea. And of course, in most instances, they are required for companies by some regulation or law somewhere or other. I have been writing about or thinking about the proper and good use of whistleblower hotlines for a long time. And we do thankfully have a lot of statistics about whistleblower hotlines how they work, how often people are using them, for what kind of things, and I think importantly, how a hotline fits into your greater realm of all the ways that employees might try to alert compliance officers or senior executives to corporate misconduct generally. And there can be a whole lot of ways that they do this. So here are the, some of the statistics that we do have is that um, still, today, and this has been true for many years now, the single largest channel for compliance officers to hear about some sort of allegation is not the hotline. It is generally going to be an employee goes to their manager. 
Um, so th the statistics I'm going to fire off to you, they all come from Navex Global. They are a software vendor that supplies whistleblower hotline and incident management systems. In full disclosure, I do work with Navex sometimes, writing some posts for them. Mm -hmm. um, I did not work with them on this report. They don't even know that I'm going to start citing it. But here's what we got. Um, right now, as of 2018, still about 39 or 40% of all allegations come through what Navex would call other channels. And other channels really are somebody walking into the boss's office to say, I have an allegation to report. That has always been the case that an employee walking up in person telling a manager is the principal way the company figures out that there's some misconduct that is going on. Um, so that's 39 to 40% right now, which actually has been trending downward. Five years ago, that was about 45%, and it has seen a slow march down while whistleblower hotlines have slowly crept up. So now they're neck and neck. Whistleblower hotlines are about 38 or 39% of the total, and managers are 39 to 40%. And then what's the difference there? It's uh, generally going to be some sort of online submission tool, not an email that, you know, Joe at company.com sends to his boss. That counts as reporting to the manager because it's an actual person just sending an email instead of a phone call. But, you know, they, they're, they're talking to managers. An online form would be an anonymized online web format, but basically serving the same function as an anonymous hotline. We also know that anonymous reports are uh, slowly but surely falling as a percentage of all reports that in companies get. In 2009, two out of three reports that you got of misconduct were somehow, they were anonymous. Today, that's still about 56%. Um, and then we also know that there's an interesting difference between allegations that somebody will actually put their name to are first off they're more likely to be true the substantiation rates for named reports are higher than anonymous reports and uh, they are also more likely to be investigated and closed faster than anonymous reports and when you think about it that does make sense because if you are just submitting something anonymously the company doesn't know whether or not you're telling the truth and they don't necessarily know who you are they have to do more legwork to figure this out and I am sure to some small extent, some people do abuse anonymous means to fabricate some sort of uh, claim. Now, I, I don't know how many, but uh, some people do. So it's not surprising, you know, that really the more you can get toward a speak up culture where, you know, string all of these statistics together, um, where it is an employee feeling comfortable enough to walk into a manager in person sit down face to face and say, I have a concern about X. Uh, that is more likely to be true. It is more likely that you'll solve it more quickly and you're going to wind up uh, getting more of a, it, I don't necessarily know that saying congenial and holding hands kumbaya culture. I don't know that's what you're going to get, but this is what you want. You want people feeling comfortable enough to say, I think the company is either marching off of a cliff or so-and-so over in this function is doing something shady. We should look into it. That's, I've never met a manager who has said, no, I would prefer not to know what's going on. So this is the goal that we want. And in various ways, we're, we're getting there. All right, so Matt, um, I know that you have a, a favorite example from Texas Health Resource. So 
How do they use their hotline to encourage a speak up culture generally? Can you tell us how that works? Sure. So I, I love Texas Health Resources and what they do. And I first heard about this when the chief people officer at Texas Health uh, was speaking on a radio program about uh, sexual harassment in the office and the Me Too movement. And this was sometime last fall when the issue really first burst onto the public's consciousness uh, and it's stayed there ever since. But Texas Health had been thinking about it long before that. And here's what they did. So Texas Health requires all managers who receive a report of harassment from an employee, uh, you have to tell the HR department immediately that you have received this harassment allegation. And the HR department may then uh, launch an investigation or something else like to, to that effect, but you cannot not report a harassment allegation to HR. If you're in a manager, you must. At the same time, Texas Health also does all of the usual where they're posting signs um, and posters in the break rooms and in the hallways and everything else and sending out email materials to all employees about the hotline. If you are experiencing harassment, if all else fails, call the hotline and it will go straight to HR and we'll get it. Um, and then also as a third step on the policy front, somewhat related, is that if you are a manager and you see any employee at all, even not even one of your direct reports, but any employee A harassing employee B, you, manager C, you are uh, obligated to step in and tell employee A, I saw that, knock it off, and then you report it to HR. If you're an employee, you're encouraged to do that. Nobody is ever penalized for um, not interfering, but you are certainly also encouraged if you see harassment to speak it up about it, even if you're not the victim. Um, so all of this taken together, what it is, is let's say um, I, the employee, I, for whatever reason, I call the hotline to report some allegation to HR. First thing HR does is they're going to try to figure out who is the manager who should be involved. Call that manager back. Number one, did you know about this? And if you knew about it and did not tell HR about it, that's a policy violation. And now you're going to have a very painful conversation with HR about why you did not speak up, why did you did not forward this harassment allegation to HR. That is a big infraction at Texas Resources, uh, Texas Health, if you keep this bottled up. Um, so really that has the effect of the manager knows that they should be encouraging employees at all times to feel free to bring it up to me. Because if for whatever reason you don't feel comfortable bringing it up to me, you always have that second option to go around me and call the hotline, and now HR is going to be in my face trying to figure out why did you not know about this? Now, to be clear, it is not that um, you're penalized for not knowing about it, necessarily. Mm -hmm. If you, you, The manager is going to be in big trouble if they did know about it and covered it up. But if for whatever reason the employee just didn't feel comfortable talking to their manager about harassment, Maybe the harasser is a senior executive and they don't really want to go to their immediate manager. They don't know what to do. I'll call the hotline or anything else. But for whatever reason, if the manager just simply didn't know and the employee didn't feel comfortable, well, for HR, that's an important thing to know. 
Um, why is that? Do we have some sort of a problem in this department that people aren't feeling comfortable? Um, you know, have we missed our training? Does the manager not understand the duty? Does the manager maybe project uh, some sort of gruff demeanor that we want to address anyways or anything like that? So what I really like is that the mere existence of the hotline as a secondary channel coupled up with uh, all of the policy uh, directives that HR has around you manager must report, um, manager is penalized if they don't report, um, all of this, it gets drives managers to think about in practical ways. How can I make this an inviting culture for employees to feel comfortable to speak out about harassment when they didn't bring it to my attention? That's what HR wants. That's what senior executives will all want. The practical effect for Texas Health was that um, they have consistently been on that. I think it's Forbes put out that list of best places to work for women. They're always on that list. They're often at the top. They were at the top last year, which is what led, um, I think it was an NPR program I heard, led mm -hmm. them to bring Texas Health's chief peer person officer onto the radio. And that's where I first heard about it. But I really, okay. I love the idea that you have kind of used the hotline to amplify all the other policy stuff that you talk about. Wouldn't it be great to have a speak up culture? Well, the hotline's mere existence there gets that done and really focuses the mind of the manager. So couldn't say enough good things about very innovative thought on what Texas Health is doing. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to First Talk Compliance, and my guest today is Matt Kelly, CEO of Radical Compliance. Earlier this year, the Supreme Court made a ruling that trimmed whistleblower retaliation protections under Dodd-Frank. Can you tell us what that case was about? Yeah, this is a fairly significant ruling from the, uh, the Supreme Court. They made this ruling, I want to say, in February. It was earlier this year. What had happened, this was a case called Digital Realty Trust versus Summers. And so Digital Realty Trust, as your listeners might now guess, that's not a healthcare company. But still, uh, the implications of the ruling the court made cover a wide range of corporations. So healthcare compliance officers will want to think about this. Uh, Digital Realty Trust involved a whistleblower who reported his concerns about possible financial fraud to the company's senior executives. Um, they looked into it. They found that uh, his allegations of fraud were um, not grounded, and so there was no evidence of fraud in their opinion, and they fired him. He then sued the company under the whistleblower retaliation protections granted in the Dodd-Frank Act, and that was passed uh, in the wake of the financial crisis in 2010. You're allowed to do that under the Dodd-Frank Act. A person who is fired is allowed to bring their own lawsuit against the company under the Dodd-Frank Act. Now, here's where it got sticky, is that Digital Realty Trust said that those protections were designed to encourage employees to uh, report misconduct to the Securities and Exchange Commission if the company is publicly traded and the SEC keeps an eye on them. Well, this whistleblower didn't report anything to the SEC. And so the company said, therefore, those protections under Dodd-Frank, they don't apply to him because he never reported to the SEC. And that was the whole point of it in the law. So we were entitled to fire him. 
the Supreme Court ruled nine to nothing in favor of the company and said, yes, that is a correct interpretation, even to the point that and the, the justices knew this. And you could hear them say it in the oral arguments about this case back last fall. They said, we understand what we're doing here. We understand that we are saying an employee fired for reporting misconduct internally, but protected if he f reports misconduct to the government. And we don't like that, but the language of the law is pretty clear. So we don't really have much room to maneuver here. And it was a 9-0 decision that therefore whistleblower protections under Dodd-Frank, they only exist if the employee first reports misconduct to the Securities and Exchange Commission. So for any company that is publicly traded, this is a big mess. It is legally a correct interpretation, but here in the real world does you no favors because therefore a employee is going to say, well, yikes, man, I first thing I have to do is go report this misconduct to the government. That is not what a compliance officer would like to hear. A compliance officer would like employees to bring any concerns directly to them. But if doing so might expose you to retaliation and there's no recourse under the law, if you're an employee, why would you? Right. Um, so that yeah, just right there alone, compliance officers should, should say, yuck, this is a mess. Um, and it is. And we can go into why, but that's what the ruling was. So why is this ruling important? How do they get into that? What's the practical upshot? Sure. So first off, um, employees now have more incentive to go directly to the Securities and Exchange Commission. And companies will have more incentive to argue, if you don't, that you're not protected. And therefore, we were entitled to fire you and you can't seek any damages from us. And that's already happened in several whistleblower retaliation lawsuits that companies now have gone for the jugular and said, you know, it was within our rights to fire you. So we did there. If you are a company that has a requirement for employees to report misconduct, well, think about what this means now, is that almost by definition, you have to assume the employee has already reported us to the SEC. Because uh, if you don't assume that, I think you are being foolish. The employee may or may not know this. I think that there are going to be a lot of whistleblower retaliation plaintiff lawyers basically going to park their vans in your company parking lot saying, got a problem with the boss? Don't tell them. Come work with me. We'll file a lawsuit with the SEC first. Like That's what plaintiff lawyers do. There's a certain class of them that I know corporate lawyers do not necessarily like, but that would be in mm -hmm. their incentive. And they're, they're right away, a lawyer is going to say, don't work with your company. Don't work with the compliance officer. First thing you do, go to the regulators, spill the beans. Um, now, if, on the other hand, you're a compliance officer and you get a report of uh, retaliation or an allegation or something like that, and you're investigating this employee, you're disciplining this employee, and you don't know whether or not they have already gone to the Securities and Exchange Commission or other regulators, um, you might be held responsible for retaliating against them. You, you don't necessarily know what you're doing because you don't know if they've talked to them or not. Uh, so any sort of duty to report misconduct that you have as a policy, you have to think about how does that intersect with this decision. Second, um, if you are the uh, company and you do have some misconduct you're thinking about, 
Uh, this is, would be particularly for anyone listening who might be, say, in medical devices or in pharmaceuticals, and you've got overseas sales. Remember, bribing a government employee overseas, bribing a foreign government official to win business is a serious corporate crime in this country. You violated the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, and now you have a problem. And now you're thinking, oh boy, how do we get out of this? I have to cooperate with the Justice Department on this. Well, the department has been clear that you have to do three things to get cooperation credit. First, you have to cooperate with the government in an investigation. You have to clean up whatever weaknesses and controls and policies led to the opportunity for this to happen in the first place. You have to remediate the underlying flaws, but you have to self-report the misconduct voluntarily to the regulators. This decision Correct. has drived, is driving employees to report to the regulators first. So you might lose your ability to win any self-reporting credit because they already know about it. Um, you know, that has not actually been put to a test yet. However, I look forward to the fact pattern that somebody somewhere is going to do, and this is going to become an issue someday, is that uh, the Justice Department could very well say, you know, the employee who knew about this told the SEC 18 months ago, they told us 17 months ago, we've been investigating you for 16 months. This is not news. You don't get the credit. And now you're in a position that you don't want to be in. Um, and then lastly, I think what really makes this just kind of a bit absurd is that for all of these risks that have increased for the company, you still have all these other laws that require whistleblower protections and anti-retaliation programs. So you're going to have to do all the work anyways, but your risks have gone up besides that. Um, if you, know, you need anti-retaliation if you're facing some sort of EEOC complaint. You need anti-retaliation protections if uh, you are looking at some sort of False Claims Act or Stark Act, Medicare, Medicaid fraud issue or something like that. You can't not have retaliation protections because this decision gives you a little bit more room. Um, on a practical level, it lets the legal department fight whistleblower retaliation complaints more aggressively, but the legal department and the compliance department are not the same thing. I don't care that compliance often answers into legal. The fact is that they're not. Compliance officers are more interested in rooting out misconduct and you need cooperation for that. This decision put a big hole in that and it gave the legal department the power to really shove hard against some whistleblowers. And meanwhile, there's a dozen other laws that still say you've got to do all the whistleblower protection work anyways. Like this is a um, this is a hole in the head that compliance officers did not need. And uh, they really need to think about how it affects whistleblower protections and their interactions with whistleblowers over the long term. It's not at all a good thing. Could you talk a little bit more about how it would affect for uh, Stark or anti-kickback or those type of laws that affect specifically for health care for, for these type of laws for this new Supreme Court ruling? What sure. your thoughts are on, on that? It can affect different companies in different ways. And I know that there are a lot of nonprofit, non-publicly traded uh, healthcare companies that aren't subject to SEC regulation, that uh, therefore this ruling doesn't necessarily 
fit with you. This ruling foremost applies to publicly traded companies. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact is, if you are that, if you're a major for-profit hospital chain or pharmaceutical or somebody else like that, right. um, if you're subject to SEC regulation, this ruling is driving would-be whistleblowers to cooperate with the SEC first. And as often happens, whistleblowers may not know exactly what the misconduct they have or the full implications of what they're going to bring to regulators. They just know something stinks. So they might report something to the SEC just to claim retaliation protections. But if it is a major, uh, some sort of fraud allegation going on that the SEC might not say, okay, well, this isn't accounting fraud necessarily, but it is a big violation of Medicare or Medicaid rules. You know, the SEC is going to turn that information over to Medicare or Medicaid. If it's criminal misconduct, they're going to report it to the Justice Department. The SEC and other regulators work on this all the time. Um, so you could see a whistleblower who doesn't necessarily know exactly what they want to say or exactly what they're staring at. And they often don't. They have a fragment of the full picture, um, but they know enough that, geez, if I really want to um, get, you know, frankly, if some of them are thinking, if I really want to get a payday from a, a big Medicare fraud settlement because I'm a whistleblower, uh, first thing I want to do is be able to claim some sort of protected status. And this ruling here tells me I should just cover all my bases and go to the SEC as soon as the whistleblower is driven outside the organization for any reason, you've lost your ability to figure out exactly where this might end. So, you know, that is why I think that anybody who is highly regulated, and if you're taking Medicare and Medicaid money, you are, um, you really have to think about that. And if you are also involved in overseas sales, you've got a lot of criminal liability around the FCPA that could also come into question. Um, you know, the the SEC claims that it is on its rulemaking agenda that it is going to revisit its whistleblower protection rules sometime. When? We don't know. How? We're not sure. But like the, the item is there on its rulemaking list. Um, but really, ultimately, this flaw resides in Congress because they wrote the text of the Dodd-Frank Act. In a perfect world, they would uh, change it. It would not take that much of a serious language change, but with Congress the way it is today, I don't know that we're going to see that anytime soon. So compliance officers are stuck with this ruling for quite a while, and um, you know, it's, it, it does you no favors. It's not the end of the world, but still, like, it just creates more risk without any upside, because you're still doing all these other whistleblower protection things anyways. Okay, thank you for, for being here today. I- Really appreciate it. I think our listeners are going to be able to glean some really positive and important information from the time that you have spent with us today. So I really appreciate the time that you have spent here. So thank you. Happy to do it, Catherine. Thank you. And thanks to our audience for tuning in to First Talk Compliance. You can learn more about our show on our programs page on healthcarenowradio.com and lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at FirstHCC or hashtag FirstTalkCompliance. You can also email me at Short at FirstHCC.com. I'm Catherine Short of First Healthcare Compliance. Remember, compliance is the key to achieving peace 
of mind.